Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. What happened for the rest of 2000 and even leading into 2001 was a skepticism of all of our warning. Even even colleagues, um, to some degree, felt like we were overwarning, that we were, you know, we considered Osama bin Laden a boogeyman. What was coming next was our biggest concern because we, for no, not, I mean, it took us years to believe that it was over, right? I mean, there was no reason for us to believe that it was just those two, or that it was just the three with the Pentagon, or it was just the four with Pennsylvania. You know, we knew the ambition of Al-Qaeda, and we needed to track down every single plot, so we didn't want to leave. It's knowing that if you don't let the fear in, then they lose. And so it's really building on that resiliency that we all naturally have, and recognizing that that is the best way to defeat any adversary and certainly terrorists because they feed off of relevance. And so it just became to me as like, oh, national security, this is parenting on an international scale. This is the last in a series of episodes we are producing to commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. In this series, we are interviewing a number of people about where they were on 9-11. Our guest today is Gina Bennett. Gina is a senior analyst at the National Counterterrorism Center, and she has worked on terrorism for much of the last 30 years. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is the final episode in a special series of Intelligence Matters, Remembering 9-11. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Gina, welcome 
to Intelligence Matters. It's an honor to have you on our show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Gina, you're the, the, the fifth and final guest in what's been a series of interviews for us on where people were on 9-11 and how they experienced it. We had Steve Hadley. We had Andy Card. Um, we had Winston Wiley, who I know you know. Um, and we had Sandy Winnefeld, who was the commander of the USS Enterprise on station um, on 9-11. But I think we've saved the best for last because you were a team, you were a member of a team of analysts that followed Al-Qaeda and followed bin Laden since its very beginning. And so it's it's a really uh, special way to end this series. And I'd love to start, Gina, with some background. And I'd love to ask you, how did you end up working on terrorism in the intelligence community? <laughs> Quite accidentally, actually. I started off as, we actually had these back then, a GS4 clerk typist over at the Department of State. So I literally typed very quickly and alphabetized. And so those are two skills that I still have, which is great. They come in handy, believe it or not. So um, that's where I started, you know, straight out of college, undergraduate. I just knew I wanted to work in foreign policy and national security arena. So I took the first job I could. And within a few months, uh, my boss promoted me to the next level up so that I could get a job that was uh, more along the lines of an analytic position. And she straight up told me, you need to go work in intelligence. You don't belong here alphabetizing, which I thought was very encouraging because my father had always told me nobody is going to know you're smart just because you have a piece of paper, you're going to have to prove it. So I applied for a terrorism watch officer position in the intelligence and research bureau at the department of state. And I, I have to say, I didn't get it. <laughs> uh, but as it turned out about a week later, the, the man who interviewed me, the head of the watch office said, hey, the person who we gave the job to decided not to take it and you are our next candidate. So there you go. So I started off as a terrorism watch officer. And here I was, you know, 21 years old, straight out of college. And um, we had right, it was right around the time of Pan Am 103 in December of 1988. And so, you know, when that attack occurred, uh, a lot of the passengers were students coming home from um, studying abroad. And so they were only a year or two younger than me. And so it really impacted me. I really felt it. And because I was working as a terrorism watch officer, I was doing a lot of the updates. You know, what were we finding? Who were the perpetrators as we tried to track that down, which took years. And I, so I was very close to that investigation for the length of it and then and beyond, really. And I remember at one point having the opportunity at State Department, working with consular officers and keeping them up to date to actually meet a handful of the victims' family members. And one of them was a mother. And at some point, you know, I was just a little peon in the room taking notes, which is fine. That's all I had the courage for at that time. And I remember you know, walking, trying to walk by her at some point when we were breaking up, the meeting was breaking up and she caught my eye and she said, hello, who are you? And I explained, you know, who I was. And she's like, oh, okay, well, thank you for listening to us. And I just looked at her and I said, I'm so sorry for your loss. You know, it just hit me. I was talking to a mother, you know, and she gave me a hug 
and said thank you for that. And I just felt in that moment, this is a woman who whose daughter was only a couple years, if not if even that, younger than me. And I just thought she's never going to hold her daughter again. And there's something about that hug. I'll be honest with you, Michael. There is something about that hug that has never left me. And I think that's the sort of thing that will drive you sort of like a cop looking for a serial killer. It'll just drive you until you think you're finished. So that's how I got into it to begin with. And that very quickly went to, you know, tracking people leaving Afghanistan, which of course Bin Laden was one of, and that led me over to CIA because Mike Scheuer and Paul, you know, Paul Pillar and others like that were over there and trying to get me to come over and bring that account with me. So I eventually did that. So Gina, you mentioned that you took the clerk typist job because you wanted to serve your country. Where did that passion come from? Oh, hands down. That came from my father. Um, My dad was, I was the youngest of five. And so when I was little, I was about three when my father retired from active duty in the Navy. He'd been a Korean War veteran. And he immediately went into civil service working for the Navy. And uh, over the course of his career, he served 47 years. So, um, you know, he was, I don't know, he just always seemed to have a higher purpose and a real sense of self-sacrifice and selflessness that I just admired. Uh, He was the most humble, patient, quiet man you can possibly imagine. He said very little, but what he said was very wise. And I, I just, I just really admired that. I guess I was your typical youngest, you know, daughter. I was the baby of the family and I just adored my father. And so that's, I think that's where it came from because he always seemed to be, you know, he he just wasn't bogged down by little things in the world and little dramas. He just had this, this sense of purpose. And I really wanted that. So you go over to CIA to work on terrorism, and I'm sure you you know that being a terrorism analyst prior to 9-11 was a little bit different than being one before 9-11. In fact, when we had Winston Wiley on the show just a little while ago, he talked about the fact that before 9-11, terrorism analysts weren't the cool kids, but then after 9-11, they were the cool kids. Did you Did you feel that? Well, I don't think I felt it from the perspective of how it impacted us in the career as much as how everything we had to say before 9-11 people dismissed because, you know, we were the analysts who were saying, hey, guess what? Tomorrow may not look like today. And nobody really wanted to believe that or, or, or hear that, which is understandable because usually tomorrow does look like today. So I get it in hindsight. But at the time, it was certainly frustrating. And then afterwards, or even really after the 1998 embassy bombings too, you started to to get the sense that people were believing that maybe we were onto something, and and that was the that was really the the switch that I felt. So, so Gina, I'll do a little bit more background here before we get to 9/11 itself, and I'm wondering if you can take a couple of minutes and walk us through the narrative of the intelligence community's understanding of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda from where the story starts and and really right up to the East Africa bombings and sort of your role in that understanding. Sure. Uh, I will say that when I came into the story, there were others who 
were already very familiar, obviously, with the Afghan-Soviet war. When I first started as an analyst, there were still Soviet troops in Afghanistan. So when I was first a terrorism watch officer, that was that was still a war that was going on. And, uh, you know, that seems like ancient history, I know. But in 1989, when, this, when the Soviet Union pulled out of Afghanistan, uh, it left behind uh, Najibullah, a, a regime that was still of its making. So there were still a lot of not only the Afghan parties, and there were seven official Afghan parties fighting the Soviet Union, so not only them, but also tens of thousands of volunteers who had gone to Afghanistan during the 1980s to help fight the Soviet Union and Soviet troops and get them out of the country. And they came from all over the world. And bin Laden was, like so many others, one of them. So in a sense, on the same side um, of the mission there. But as when the troops pulled out in 1989, right up until April of 1992, which is when Najibullah was assassinated, uh, there was a little bit of a a fracture in whether or not this was considered a legitimate jihad, because now it was Afghans fighting Afghans, as opposed to Afghans with their volunteer forces from elsewhere fighting an alien, you know, occupying military. But really, when Najibullah was assassinated in April 92, I think it was April 92, uh, that really changed things. Uh, A lot of people who were volunteers left because they didn't want to be involved in a civil war. That wasn't what they were there for. They were there to fight an occupying country. So that's where, you know, in 1992, the rest of the world is focused on the fall of the Soviet Union and, you know, the Iron Curtain crumbling and all that. And we were noticing this basically outflow of thousands, really, of individuals who had been fighting in Afghanistan alongside various Afghan parties, and they were going back or trying to get back to their home countries. In some cases, though, they were moving on to other areas uh, where we were seeing fundamentalists, Islamic extremists, um, or, or just Islamist opposition groups fighting some other kind of occupying forces or their own government. So you started to see this volunteer, almost this professional volunteer force dispersing and going to other places to volunteer and to to bring that knowledge elsewhere. And so that is really in the early 90s that we start to see that outflow. And it is also around then that we start hearing about this guy named Abu Abdullah at the time. That's who we knew him as, a Saudi. He was originally portrayed as a Saudi renegade or a little bit of a rogue who had been, who had fought in Afghanistan, who was famous and very popular, very charismatic, and who had a lot of money. Now, the money thing eventually became something of a myth, but that was our hook at the time, uh, seeing, you know, reporting of him having a lot of money and being able to give money to people who were in um, extremist or violent opposition groups, terrorist organizations. It was a way for us to try to track him. I mean, we didn't have foreign terrorist organization legislation back then, so there was no other way. He wasn't a, I mean, he wasn't a part of a state 
um, there was no other way for us to really try to track him. So that's what we did for several years. Um, and it was, I think it's important to remember too, that in the context of this time, we were just coming out of the cold war. We had survived this era of the fear of mutually assured destruction. And we were seeing what we thought was democracy breaking out all over the world. Our really only understanding of terrorism had been either groups that were sponsored by the Soviet Union and the um, Eastern Bloc, and so they were more Marxist um, types of groups, or um, groups that were sponsored by a state like you know, Iran or you know others, and to grapple with a group that had no state sponsorship, that was having to scrap by and and just like get whatever it could and whose members were not even the same ethnicity or nationality could probably in some cases barely understand each other's version of Arabic or, or Pashto or whatever else they spoke, just did not seem possible that that could be a threat. So I, I think it's important to remember that because there are things today that seem impossible that they could be a threat. Um, and so just because you can't imagine it doesn't mean it isn't happening. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Gina Bennett. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So, Gina, when did we identify bin Laden as a significant threat? Well, that depends who you mean by we. We in the counterterrorism community, the very small group of folks who were collecting information and analyzing it, across really across the IC. By 1995, uh, I had gathered individuals in different agencies and turned us into an interagency, you know, with the Intel Community Working Group under the leadership of the Counterterrorist Center. So the Counterterrorist Center at the time, you know, was the community. And so we tried to grab all and leverage all of the expertise that we possibly could because what was happening is there were there were individuals in each of the intelligence community agencies that were noticing this outflow they were hearing about this individual named Abu Abdullah who we eventually identified as a bin Laden Osama bin Laden and and, and having the same kinds of concerns i was by no means the only person who was picking up on this but they, we were a small group so what happens is you're, if you're one person within an organization that's pretty big, you don't really have a lot of influence. So we banded together and we created an interagency working group and we started to produce uh, this multi-sealed analytic work to, to bring attention to the possibility of what Bin Laden, and we thought, we thought the name back then was the Islamic Army. That's how they were referred to in a lot of the the rumors and information that we were picking up. So trying to bring attention to this as a, as a real possible threat. There wasn't a lot of people believing us 
back then. Um, you know, in 1993, I remember somebody telling me that I was making a mountain out of a molehill, you know, within the intelligence community when I was trying to provide a warning, an analytic warning about it. And again, it was just a really tough thing to believe this kind of threat. So there were a really small group of us, eventually most of us in the counterterrorist center who, who believed this, this was our assessment and in everything that we gathered, continued to add to it rather than detract. So, you know, that, that is, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really say that beyond this small cadre of people, there was much belief in the significance of it, um, of Al Qaeda, of Osama bin Laden, really until after the Africa embassy bombings. Where were you um, for those? Oh, goodness. I had just delivered my third child, um, which was a um, kind of a constant theme for me uh, <laughs> because I have five children, so there were a lot of them. And I had just delivered my third, my first daughter, and uh, I got the phone call from work because I had been working on one of the networks in um, in East Africa. And so I came in with my baby and just started working like everybody else. So we have the East Africa bombings in, in August of 2008, Gina, and then we have the planned attacks around the millennium, um, Jordan, elsewhere. Those were disrupted. Uh, and then we have the bombing of the USS Cole in October of 2000. So people are starting to pay attention at this point, correct? Yes. I mean, the 1998 Africa embassy bombings really caused people to see that we don't think that that was the first incident that was involving, you know, that involved Al Qaeda sponsorship or just, you know, Al Qaeda operatives, but that was the one that got a lot of notice. But I think it's important in setting the stage for 2001 uh, to really correct the perception because what happened in 1998 with um, those those bombings, of course, our embassies were were nearly destroyed, and we had a lot of casualties. But there were largely, the casualties were African Muslims, locals, and Bin Laden himself got a lot of criticism for that. So there was a feeling among the community that his next attacks were going to focus more on just Americans, um, and he was feeling that pressure. So there was this increased sense of in, you know, dread um, and, and probably fear among many. And as we approached the millennium, as you pointed out, again, we that was, of all of the things, that was like such a ticking time bomb situation because Al-Qaeda was looking at the millennium as the whole Western world was celebrating the 200th, or the, two, excuse me, the 2000th anniversary of the birth of Christ. So, they were mirror imaging, thinking that we were celebrating it as a very Christian kind of celebration. And um, otherwise, they weren't really into specific dates. Uh, but at any rate, we felt like we were seeing, as George Tennant said, the system blinking red, a top-down type of a, attack plotting occurring. And so while there were a number of attacks disrupted, we didn't really think that those were the ones. It was um, really frustrating at that time. Of course, the rest of the world is worried about, you know, Y2K and our computers. <laughs> so, and we're working 24-7 in the counterterrorist center trying to figure out what 
this top-down plot is. It didn't seem like it was Ahmed Rassam. It didn't seem like it was the plots in Jordan because those were very dispersed in terms of who was in charge. And we never really got closure on that. And of course, as you know, 2001, 2000 came and, and went and we didn't see any attacks. And so what happened for the rest of 2000 and even leading into 2001 was a skepticism of all of our warning. Um, I even, even colleagues um, to some degree felt like we were over warning that we were, you know, we considered Osama bin Laden a boogeyman. I even had somebody tell me that. And they just weren't as keen you know, to do some of the things that we asked to be done as when we see another time when the system was blinking red. So for example, in the summer of 2001, because there was this skepticism of our analysis and I get it, I understand, but it was very frustrating. And, and I think to understand that we weren't really going from 1998 awareness to 2001, we were going from 1998 awareness to a dip in trust and faith in our analysis into 2001. So, you know, the coal attack in October of 2000 led a number of people to also believe that Al-Qaeda was going to go for hardened military American targets because of the criticism in 1998 of killing too many civilians. So again, that, that also presented a bit of a, of a hurdle for us in trying to gin up the sort of concern that we felt we needed in the, you know, throughout 2001, as we were seeing a plot unfold then. This is Intelligence Matters. We're talking with Gina Bennett about 9-11. Okay, Gina, so on 9-11, where were you working? Um, and can you walk us through your day? Sure. So on, you know, on 9-11, I was in DC. I was working at CI headquarters. And um, another, a colleague of mine, we both worked in CTC together, we carpooled. So she picked me up. We drove in like we normally do. And, you know, it's just a beautiful day. And, and DC doesn't have a lot of crisp, dry days in September. They're usually quite muggy and gross. But this day was just gorgeous. It was one of those days. And we, when we were driving in and walking in and we first got in the building, what was on our mind, what we were talking about was the assassination of Ahmed Shah Massoud, which had just occurred a couple of days before on the 9th of September in Afghanistan. So going back to that Afghan-Soviet war, this was one of the leaders, a very tough individual, one of the leaders of the seven parties that fought the Soviets. And he was still in there fighting the Taliban um, in, the, in the north. And, you know, we had a good relationship with him back then. And so his assassination just felt like a bad omen. Um, and it was a pretty sophisticated plot that they, that was used in that. And so you had this sense of something, this can't be good, right? This can't portend anything good. So, but you know, we went into work, we did what we usually do. It's you know, pretty early morning and you go through all of the information that has come in overnight as analysts to you pick up on the plots that you were tracking on the individuals you were tracking and, you know, just try to figure out what has happened in the eight hours that you dared to be away. And um, so it's a little overwhelming in the morning and it was, Oh, I don't know. It was about, I guess it was 
quarter to nine or so when we heard, like everybody else, that a plane had hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And it was very confusing at first because unlike what people see in TV, there aren't big, huge television screens all over the place. You know, you're in this little cubicle um, working, you know, side by side with other people in your little cubicles. And there were only a couple of dozen of us, uh, you know, in the analytic part of CTC uh, pre 9-11. So, you know, we're all just huddling, doing our thing. And we hear from FAA, which was, of course, the organization that preceded TSA, the Federal Air Administration, that a plane had hit the North Tower. And so we thought it must be a commuter plane that had just tremendous mechanical difficulties. It, it was bewildering, but, but not, not, we didn't hit a panic button. Um, and without being able to see it, you know, we didn't realize the size of, of the hole in the building. So we were waiting to hear updates and continued doing what we always did, you know, obviously looking at plots that had anything to do with airplanes. And then, um, I don't know, a few minutes into it, we weren't getting a lot of clarity. So we went into an empty office and turned on the TV, a handful of us analysts. And I remember standing next to a really good friend and colleague, and we were standing there looking and you can see the hole and, and the fire and the, 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 everything, the smoke coming out of the North Tower, and you realize that could not have been a commuter plane. That's huge. And right as you're watching that, this, the surreal image of the other plane hitting the South Tower and how large it was against the top of the South Tower, it just, it just didn't look real. But when it hits, you would, we just immediately knew um, we just immediately knew that that was Al Qaeda. No doubt in your mind. None. I mean, nobody had any doubt in their mind. It, it just, nobody does that. <laughs> you know, we had no other adversary at the time. There was, there was just no other explanation. There was concern about somebody flying a plane into CIA headquarters and George Tennant evacuated the place, but you and the other counterterrorism analyst stayed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we heard that too, that the, that the building had been evacuated and we were asking, wait, 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 we have to stay though. Like we, you know, we have, because we needed to chase down all sorts of things, manifest, try to figure out who done, you know, who was on the plane, what was coming next was our biggest concern because we've for no, not, I mean, it took us years to believe that it was over. Right. I mean, there was no reason for us to believe that it was just those two or that it was just the three with the Pentagon or it was just the four with Pennsylvania. We just, you know, we knew the ambition of Al Qaeda and we needed to track down every single plot. So we didn't want to leave. And then when we were told, no, um, counterterrorist center is expected to stay We're, you know, we know what our job is right now and we're going to do it. So that was a relief. Um, and we went back to our desks and started working, but, um, it was also right around then because uh, we were hearing schools were evacuating. Like there was a lot of panic going on around the DC area, understandably so. But a whole stream of colleagues from other missions, you know, in the agency, other parts of the agency just started flooding down in CTC to volunteer to help us, which I'll never forget. Like I'll, I will never forget those faces 
of people who were just like, and some of these were people who were skeptical of our analysis in the year and a half beforehand. And they were there like, we are here. We've, we are here for you. We've got this. We want to help. Do you remember what time you got home that night? No, <laughs> I don't remember anything other than work. <laughs> I don't. Um, and I was pregnant. So that, that may account for some of my memory loss because I was in the early stages of my fourth pregnancy and nobody knew I was pregnant other than the women who were, would be in the bathroom while I was throwing up and they got, you know, we're pretty quick at picking up what's going on. So I don't remember. I really, the next thing I remember other than work was my 11 year old son's baseball game. And that was on Saturday morning. So four days went by in a blur and I, you know, I, everyone was at work constantly. So I wasn't (laughs) the only one at all, but I remember being at this baseball game and I do recall that I was very shabbily dressed, like in sweats and probably hadn't showered much, if at all. I don't even remember. And so I stood to the side because number one, I was conscious of the fact that I probably smelled bad, but I also, I was afraid if I sat in the stands, I might just fall, (laughs) fall sound asleep or fall over or whatever. I didn't trust my balance at that point. So I, I was standing off to the sides near the dugout and, you know, the kids were out on the baselines, you know, you have the nine, 10 boys on each baseline and they were listening to the national anthem before the start of their game. And when the national anthem ended, the head coach said, and now we're going to have a moment of silence for the tragedy of Tuesday. And it hit me. I was like, this is real. I think that was my first external experience. And I realized everybody else knows this is real. This wasn't just something that happened that we were aware of. You know what I mean? It just, I don't know why it just suddenly hit me as, oh my God, this is actually real. And everybody is experiencing this. But then um, after the moment of silence was over, Michael, the most amazing thing, those little boys sped to their dugouts, grabbed their gear and just dashed out to the field and, you know, hamming it up like only 11-year-old baseball players can, you know, just practicing their ESPN moments, you know, sliding into the bases. And I realized also in that moment that we were going to be okay, that, you know, America was going to be okay. And so it was just a term, and maybe that's why I don't remember the days before that, but because it was just such a powerful feeling and I'll, I'll never like those faces of my colleagues who came down and, you know, who said, Hey, we're here. We believe you. We're going to help. Um, it just is one of those scenes, you know, one of those feelings that I'll never forget. And it carries me still carries me. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more intelligence matters. I'm Michael Morrell. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Gina, let me finish up here with some 
maybe broad questions. Um, it's obviously been 20 years since that horrific day. Um, when you look back uh, over the last 20 years, what do you think the key lessons learned are? Oh, yeah, no, there's so many. And I don't think we should ever stop questioning. You know, I've, one thing I've learned is over time, you start to question what you believed you thought before. <laughs> and that's a good thing. Uh, I know for sure, the first thing I learned that day when my colleagues came in is you cannot do this alone. You you have to look for help everywhere. And I think we've done that on an international scale. I mean, we've collaborated and cooperated and built alliances against terrorism, uh, much like, you know, nations beforehand have tried to build alliances for, you know, against um, biological weapons, things like this. So I think that's a really important humbling lesson, learning that you, you really do need help. You need friends. Um, we've learned that you have to constantly question constantly just when you think you know what's going on when you think all is right with the world like the end of the the cold war and the beautiful september 11th day in 2001 and then the world has a way of humbling you so i think we especially at cia we have learned to embrace challenge to you know really almost build a culture of insubordination. You know, like you need to challenge each other and question, you know, why do you think that? I'm not so sure. And I think that's critically important. Um, but I think most of all, it, it, to me, it goes back to the, the little boys playing baseball. It's knowing that if you don't let the fear in, then they lose. And so it's really building on that resiliency uh, that, we all naturally have against our adversaries, but really owning it and recognizing that that is the best way to defeat any adversary and certainly terrorists because they feed off of relevance. You know, the more they influence, the more power they have. So the more you take their relevance away, the less power they have. So I think those are, to me, those are the three big lessons. And I think for the agency, it's not dissimilar, you know, we know we build coalitions, we, and we're really good at it. And um, we, we know we have to challenge each other and we don't take it personally. It's, it's an important part of the, of the job. And you know, we build that into our training. And I think, you know, knowing also that resilience, look, we've lost colleagues and friends in, in all of this, and we're going to lose colleagues and friends in the future, whether it's terrorism or some other um, tragedy in the world. But, but we know we've got each other's backs and we're going to keep on doing what we have to do. We've always got to be on guard and that's the job. Gina, you have a, a public persona. You've done interviews. You've been in documentaries. You wrote a book, um, terrific book. Most serving intelligence officers don't do those things. Why, why have you chosen to do so? Well, that's a good question. Um, actually, what happened was the during the 9-11 commission period, uh, some of my earliest analysis that we were talking about earlier on bin Laden was, was the subject of a Freedom of Information Act request, and it was declassified and it had my name on it. So back in those early days, uh, some of that analysis still had our actual names, and for whatever reason, it wasn't excised. So there I was, right? in the public. And I remember 
giving a presentation for a women's council event at CIA, and it was about work-life balance. And I thought, you know, everything that I do at work, I do at home. And so when I was presenting, along with some really wonderful women at the CIA and the leadership back then, I said, you know what? Everything I do to secure my family is really what I do here to secure the nation. It's what we do to secure the nation. It's not just about safety. I can't just you know, lock my doors and keep my kids from getting sick. I have to teach them how to bounce back, you know, how to be resilient and stick to their own character and not be bullied and things like this. And I was like, that's what we do also in national security. And so it just became to me is like, oh, national security, this is this is parenting on a on an international scale. But some of the the objectives are very, very similar. And it was at that presentation, actually someone from the public affairs office at the agency asked me if I would write that up for a newsletter, which I did. And then they suggested it be external, which it was. So then it was, you know, shared publicly on the website. And next thing you know, I had somebody say, hey, can we put that in a magazine? And it just kind of spiraled from there. But I have to say, um, you know, as a mother of five and being able to talk to other mothers and young women and help them understand that, in fact, national security isn't just about the military. It isn't just about special forces and and top secret things that are hard for your average, you know, high school girl or or just average person to be exposed to. It's also about something much deeper. I think I hope that that makes it a little bit more accessible to just everyone. Um, I, at least that was my that was my purpose. Yeah, and it and and it absolutely does all of those things. So you should be you should be proud of that. Um, just one more just one more question. You you teach at the university level at at Georgetown NGW, I think. Um, what a, what do you want your students to walk out of your classes um, having learned? What's 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 really important to you um, in terms of what they get out of your class? Uh, oh, thank you for asking that, actually. Um, th- two things, really. And it's funny because last night uh, I just had my first class um, for the fall semester at Georgetown the Security Studies Program. So I teach ethics and intelligence support to national security. And I, I told them there's two things. One is the Constitution. <laughs> you need to understand uh, when you raise your hand and swear your oath to support and defend the Constitution, what you're doing and what that means and how hard that is going to be, but how powerful it is, right? And sometimes it's hard to understand why am I doing it? Why, are, why is the regulation this or why can't we do that? And the answer is because you have to consider whether or not in the short or the long term you might do harm to the constitution and we do no harm to the constitution, right? Uh, fundamentally, that's like number one. So I think really being very intimate with the, the tensions in the constitution and the complexities of it and how, ha- and how much it demands of every individual, but especially those who's, who raise their hand and swear to defend it with their life and their lives, you know, living people, defending it. So that's one. The other is I want them to know what their own ethical compass is, 
you know, are they ends-based thinkers? Are they rules-based thinkers? Is it, does it come from a moral religious doctrine? You know, whatever it is, know your own code, know your own compass, because you want to know when you're getting into a situation that might be breaking it. Because I want to give them the tools to help navigate that space. Because at the end of the day, I don't think any of us want to leave. I mean, I've got 33 years in, in the intelligence community. When I retire, I want to still leave a whole person, you know, with my integrity and my ethical compass intact. And I want that for them too. So you just, you just need to know when maybe it's in danger and how to navigate that space. So those are the two things. That's great. Um, that's terrific, actually. Uh, Gina, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been a really special conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate being able to be here and, and talk about 9-11 like this. Thanks, Gina. That was Gina Bennett, and this was the final episode in our special series, Remembering 9-11. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another regular episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.